Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, just enjoy this time. Looking forward to our study in Corinthians. And um, I think we've got a lot to cover this morning. I'm really looking forward to really getting this thing kicked off, getting into the Word. I don't know how long we're going to be in. It looks like if I go at this pace, it'll be a while. But there's going to be some chapters we're going to go through quick, and there's going to be others that we're going to dig into deep. Obviously, I want to spend time in chapter one. It'll take some take a couple weeks, three weeks to get through it, so uh, just bear with me, but uh, good to see all you folks always, and uh, I do pray for you, and I'll kind of talk to you why I think it's important that we pray for each other, especially uh, in the world we live in today, but I want to give you some more background on Corinth. Uh, As we talked, we ended last week talking about the ruins of Corinth and how pornographic it was for the people that excavated back in the 20s. They had to cover everything because it was so vile. Uh, Corinth is just uh, just one of those cities that you talk about in Scripture that's just, it, it was a port city. And uh, in fact, the reason why it was so popular is because back, now this is, a, this is more present tense here, but back in the day, they, they used to bring the ships from the Gulf of Corinth or uh, into, in, over land, they would pass those ships over land. They had a system in place to do that over into Syrianic, which is Aegean Sea, Mediterranean, and while that was going on, the, you know, the, the people in the ships would go into the city of Corinth. So it obviously became a really popular stopping point for uh, folks, and it became a really uh, wicked city uh, when it came to sin. We kind of likened it under Vegas. In fact, I believe, if I remember right, the saying that what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. You know where what happens in Vegas stays in I'm messing with you folks. That's not where it started. But that's really, it's Sin City. It, to act like a Corinth was, was, was a reputation of prostitution and debauchery. So this is, when we, you got to have this mindset uh, as we talk about when we go into the scriptures, why there's so much practicality in the book of Corinthians as we study it, and why Paul was dealing with a mess of, in, with these people's lives. Think about where they came from. Think about what they were exposed to. They had no Bible. They, their influence was great. And so now God's going to take these folks. He's going to purge this. He's going he's to renew their thinking and, and their, 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 their way of life. And it's so contrary to what they knew. And we'll get into all that. But um, by the way, that, that, they went over land. That's the canal today. That was built in the 1800s. So smaller ships will still go through there. No big ships, obviously. But you can see where they used to go over land and they'd hang out in Corinth, but today they, they would just go, uh, obviously, through that canal. So it gives you a little bit of, if anybody would ever visit Corinth, you'd be able to see that. It's quite a wonder. So I only got a couple quick videos, three-dimensional. These aren't the best, but this is about all we have available to us online. These were developed to kind of give you a picture of what it would have been like in Paul's day, what Corinth would have been. Of course, I'm sure they, they've highlighted some things. You'll look in the back. Remember we talked about the temple of uh, Aphrodite, which is the goddess of love. This is where the thousand prostitutes hung out, and their religion was to have sex, and sexual morality was very rampant through the city. Obviously, starting with the temple, it was about 1,800 feet, and it overlooked the city, and it was somewhat fortified. So you'll get an idea, and not much of this, but at least to get a kind of a glimpse of what, what that would have been like in the day. You got a little sound there, brother? 
You'll see the main city there. The uh, city center, as some would call. There's probably a lot of uh, debates going on. And I'm sure Paul spent some time preaching in that center to declare the message. You'll see the amphitheaters. Um, you've got uh, the arenas where they had uh, many of their uh, contests. And um, Paul, I'm sure, got some of those uh, illustrations as he wrote in the scripture. Uh, there's just one more video here. Um, Yep, chariot races. I don't know what those lights are going on, but it's a little dramatic. Yeah, there's your amphitheater where they would have their plays. Now, these things were pretty sophisticated for their day. These cities weren't just run down, you know. It'll be interesting in the end of this, you'll see a bunch of tents. And you remember, Paul was a tent maker. So along with Aquila and Priscilla last week, we talked about that. So it was uh, not uncommon to find tents uh, skewed all over the place, uh, whether it's a marketplace or people live there. But, you know, this is a city that's, you could say, was somewhat beautiful if you look at it there. But truth, truth be told, God saw it as a, as a filthy, vile city. But yet, as he said to Paul, Paul, you're not leaving here. Because Paul was ready to book it out of town. About a day or two, he's like, I'm done. I'm out of here. And God said, I've got other plans for you, Paul. He said, I need you here. i got much people in this city. And so God, God obviously uh, raised up Paul. And Paul, little did he know, he'd spend the next 18 months with the, with the people of Corinth, training them in the Word of God and, and directing them. And so uh, it's a unique story. By the way, I failed to mention last week, as I was telling you about that journey with Paul and the second missionary, uh, his second missionary journey, when he came into Corinth, uh, you remember, I, if you recall, he went into the synagogues always first. And as he got in there, he was, just to say, be frustrated with the Jews and, and the leaders at that time. And he got to the point where they had opposed him enough and rejected him. He went out and he said, I am clean. I'm going to the Gentiles. I'm done with this group. Now, how many of you folks, out of anger and frustration, and I got to laugh about this when I... How many of you have said things like that with people you've dealt with, and whether family member or friends, you said, I am done. I'm clean. I'm not dealing with them anymore. I'm out of that. And then you find yourself dealing with them a week later, two weeks later, a month later. Well, guess what Paul does? He says, I'm clean. And then he turns around. He hangs out in the house of justice. And the next thing we read in there, in Acts chapter 18, he leads a fellow by the name of Crispus to the Lord. You know who Crispus is? He's the chief ruler of the synagogue. Now, that's one of many, I'm sure. And then not only did he get saved, but his whole household gets saved. Paul wasn't done with the Jews. When he said, I'm clean and I'm going to the Gentiles, it was probably out of frustration. Now, maybe he didn't spend a lot of time in the synagogues anymore, but for sure he was still about leading the Lord, and the Jews were not off his list, even though he made a statement, I am clean, I'm done with these folks. We've all been there, and I had to laugh when I thought about that. We just get to the point we're done, but we're really not done. We say a lot of things we don't mean, right? Amen? Especially in our marriage. <laughs> I'm done with you. Yeah, sure. First Corinthians one one. We're gonna get a, uh, You can open your Bibles. You know, we're, we're trying to give you as much scripture up here. Talk. I'm gonna talk you through some of this stuff. Uh, we'll do a little bit more verse by verse here. But what 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 you find in First Corinthians is very common. The, the what we call the general salutation. Uh, it's very common in all of Paul's writings where he refers to himself as the apostle 
called of God, by the will of God. You'll see this uh, throughout all of his epistles with the exception, I believe, of First and Second Timothy because it was written to a pastor and he refers to himself as a servant. But in all the other letters, he's like Paul, Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, by the will of God. And so you'll see that's a common... Um, and the reason for that, especially for Corinthians, there was a lot of, uh, let's just say, uh, people that were questioning his authority about whether he was really an apostle, because really the apostles were the ones that were directly trained under Jesus Christ. So how could he be apostle if he was someone that was saved after Jesus Christ rose and went to the right hand of the Father? Well, it's interesting that when you think about that, did he spend time with Christ? Now, I'm not sure I can answer that question. We do know that Christ gave him direct revelation. The mystery of the church was given to him by direct revelation. We know the rapture was given to him about direct re- We have a lot of subject material that's clear. Even the gospel was given to him, not by man, but by revelation of Jesus Christ. What the def- definition of the gospel is, the death, burial, and resurrection. And by grace are you saved. He was the one who revealed that. So you see a common thread, but that people question his apostolic authority. Now, you go back into Galatians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, and Paul says, after his conversion in Damascus, remember on the road to Damascus, he got saved, and then he said he conferred not with flesh and blood. He said, but then he went into Arabia, And then Damascus, I don't know how long he spent in either of those areas, the desert of Arabia, for three years. He did not confer with flesh and blood. So what was he doing? I mean, it's a a big assumption that he was spending time with Christ at the feet of Christ, learning and getting the authority and the revelation of to be the apostle that he was. So uh, certainly he refers to himself as one born out of due time, which simply means he came after all the, you know, the work of the apostles, and he was the last, as one born out of due time. And uh, so clearly, he ha- he's going to defend his authority. And uh, that's important as we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 4, as they had questioned his authority. And so, with that said, there's the general salutation continues in verse 2 and 3. If you read verse 2, "...unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints." And then in verse 3, he says, Grace be unto you and peace from God. So this word sanctified, this gets people confused. Sanctified is being set apart, made holy for God. So there are two positions every believer holds in regards to sanctification. Get a little theology here. There's a fixed sanctification that's done at the moment of your new birth. The moment you trust Christ, you are sanctified. You say, how so? Okay, follow me. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says, By one spirit are we all baptized. That's not water baptism, that's spirit baptism. By one spirit are we all baptized into the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit takes us the moment we trust Him and immerses us into the body of Christ. It's a spiritual operation according to Colossians chapter 2. A spiritual operation. Not physical. And then it says, uh, Ephesians 5, one of my favorite verses, verse 30, says, we are his members of his bones and of his flesh. Now, you believe that? Think about that for a minute. Of his members, of his bones, and of his flesh. 
Then it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6, he said, we're seated with him in the heavenlies. So right now, every born-again believer is sitting with Christ. That's your position. That's your sanctification. I think it says, for by one offering, Hebrews 10, verse 12, 13, I think. It says, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So when you're born again, you're sanctified, made holy once and for all. And that you're seated with him. That's your fixed position. That never changes. We'll talk about that in a minute. That never changes. You say, well, you know, some people don't always believe that. We'll get into that for just a minute. But that's important to understand. Now, what about your practical sanctification? This is the moment God saves you, now he's going to spend a lifetime sanctifying you. Here on this earth, you have this position. This is who you are in God's eyes. It's done. It's complete. The Bible says you're already glorified, in fact, in the mind of God. Now he wants you to act it. So these Corinthians, he's telling them, you're sanctified, but now you're going to be, God's going to do a work to make you reflect what is really going on in your life. So the process of sanctification is practical. Is God working through you? You know how he does that? Through the word of God. Sanctify them, Jesus said in John 17, 17. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. He takes the word and he says, you are clean through the word which I have spoken to you. So he has all kinds of ways of sanctifying you here on this earth to make, reflect what's actually happened in your life. So sanctification is really important for us to understand. And we want to act out, live out what's really already been done. That already then he says, called to be saints. Now, that's not some process. This is the process of sanctification. You're, you are a saint. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, he said, to the saints which are in Ephesus, that are in Ephesus. He's already saying, present tense, you are the saint of God in his mind. Now, here he says, called to be saints means act like it. He wants you to act like you're a saint of God. Now, this process is a lifetime of sanctification of God, but there's no such thing as, okay, I live a good life, I die, and then years later people recognize me as a saint. The sainthood. That's the tradition of men. That's never been the scripture. You can find that in the scriptures if you tried. When God talks about the saints, he talks to you about it in the present tense. So we are all saints of God. We just may not act like saints. Do you get my point? And God's, this is, think about the group he's working with. These folks are a mess. They've come out of a worldly system. And he's like, okay, you, this is what God's did. Now, now you got to act like it. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the word. I'm going to help you. I'm going to guide you through that. That's the process of sanctification. And then you read grace. Then he says, grace unto you and peace. By the way, this is found in all of Paul's letters. And, all, and it's, a, it's a perfect order because if you think about for you to have real peace in your life, and everybody strives for some peace in their life, boy, especially today, wouldn't you say? You can't have real peace. I'm talking about the peace of God that passes all understanding. It's not for you if you were not born again. You might get temporary relief and peace, but real peace comes from God. So you'll notice the order of this. Grace, peace. And every salutation, when he opens it up, he says, grace be unto you and peace. Grace be unto you and peace. Why? Because there's no peace without the grace of God. 
Now, people piggyback on the grace of God, but you have the grace of God. He gave it to you in the moment you got the new birth, and now you have a peace that the world cannot have. They don't understand why you're calm and you're, you're, you're trusting God through the worst of times and tribulations. They can't understand when a loved one's passed how you're just like, you know, that's the will of God. God has a plan. And you have peace about it. There's something that we have that the world doesn't have. But you know why? That helps them realize they want, maybe they want that. They want that peace because that is exactly what the world's looking for. They're just looking in all the wrong places. So grace comes which is God's merited favor toward us and the peace that follows. I love this bumper sticker. You used to see it quite a bit on cars. It said, no Christ, no peace. And then it said, no Christ, no peace. Well, and that's the truth. I love that bumper sticker. When I used to see it as a, when I was uh, back in the 80s, I was like, well, that makes sense. That's, that's perfect sense. So that's exactly what grace is. Without the grace of God, you're not going to know the peace of God. Or peace in general. All right. So he goes. He goes in verse uh, four. He offers a prayer. I love this part of it, and, and we'll get into this this end of this prayer. But he says, "I thank my God always on your behalf." This is this is Paul offering up a prayer, and he spends time kind of reminding them of the gifts God's given them. By the way, every believer has been given a gift by God, some kind of gift to do something for Him. The question is, find the gift and then do it for Him no matter small or big or whatever it may be. So Paul's reminding them that you're being enriched, that you speak the right things, and he, he, he's thankful. We ought to be thankful for one another as believers. We, we have something special given to us. By the way, we're all going to spend eternity with each other, so we might as well get used to it now. Amen? The difference is we won't have a sinful body. We won't have what, what you're going to hear about next is all the petty differences we have to deal with. We're going to have that perfect body to enjoy each other's company more than we've ever enjoyed. But he finishes this prayer as a reminder. And I love this part. Jesus Christ who shall confirm you unto the end. Paul's giving them, a, this is an eternal security passage, uh, uh, the, the blessed assurance. Each one of us should be secure in our faith. Why? Because it's not us. It's Him. It's Jesus Christ. It's His faith. In, in what he did for us. So he's going to confirm us unto the end. That's what he reminds them in prayer. I love this part. Hebrews 12. Think about this verse. Looking unto Jesus, who, by the way, is this coming in and out? It seems that way. I keep hearing myself that I don't hear. So Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Notice who started it. And look what who finishes it. So, you know, this idea, people make a mess with salvation and how you could lose it. You know, they get into some verses and they, they read into those verses and they exclude all these other verses and they say, see, you can lose your salvation. And, and Paul's here giving them assurance of salvation. You're not going to lose it because it's not yours to lose. I'm hanging on to Jesus. Look, you're not hanging on to Jesus. He's hanging on to you. Not because he needs you. He's hanging on to you. And by the way, he has you lock, stock, and barrel, man. I mean, he's got all of you, and he's not letting go. You know, people, this is where they meant. Well, you know, I fell into sin, and I rebelled against God. How many in here have fallen into sin and rebelled against God at some point? Now, take off your little halo and admit it. At some point, you've backslidden. Now, it's not everybody, but most people have had that experience. Well, 
Is that enough to lose it? That's the problem with, you know, you don't know what, you know, can lose it. But think about that idea. Oh, then it means it's up to you to keep your salvation. If I fall into sin, and it can happen, and rebel against God, and it can happen, and I can doubt God, it can happen, then that means my salvation is dependent on me. But that verse says he's the author of it, and he's the finisher. He started it, he'll finish it. He said he'll confirm you unto the end. That's a promise of God. Think about your, how many of you had children you raised that rebelled on you? Come on, is anybody, okay, let me ask you this. Has anybody had a child that didn't go through a phase of rebellion? Yeah, nobody. So I had a daughter, I have two daughters, I had one, and she was an angel. And around age 13, she became a devil. She walked through the door one day, and I had no idea who she was, and she stayed around for like four or five years. And drove me, we clashed, it was unbelievable, the conflict, the, the grieving, was all, let me tell you folks, as much as I despised her at times, I never stopped loving her. Never going to stop giving up. Now somebody said, well, you know, I had a kid like that, I was done with him, I kicked, gave him the boot, I haven't talked to them in years. That might be true, but they're still your child. You know why I know they're still your child? Because they're your child by blood. You can't change that. And guess what? We're children of God by the blood. We're connected. Remember? Bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh, seated with him in the heavenlies. Tell me how you reverse that. Show me one verse that says it's reversed. Not one. Now you say, well, that gives me a license of sin. Oh, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't go down that road. You're not going to be happy. He'll take care of his children the way he wants to take care of them. I know there's times when your children rebel. We wanted to give them a boot. And we wanted them out of the house, but honestly, we didn't never stop loving them. And God's the same way with us. He's doing all he's to work with us. Now we could get to the sin unto death, and I'm not going to get into all that, but that doesn't mean you lose it. And he's, look at this verse in Timothy, writing to a pastor. Now I'm persuaded that he, Christ, is able to keep that which I've committed unto him. What did I commit to him? My, my soul. He's going to keep it, man, because he started it. He'll finish it. Uh, he may, you may go fighting all the way to heaven, but he's going to take you to heaven. That's not a good way to go. I don't recommend it. I love this verse, and we talked about this two weeks ago, and I give unto them eternal life, because people worry about the future, and, oh, is that gonna, am I going to go through the tribulation and all that? No, stop it. We may go through a tribulation, but not the tribulation. I'm not going to get into all that again. But people get scared about that. And I remind them, I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Now, help me with this. What, what did Jesus mean never? Or did he mean something else other than never? He said, they shall never perish. It's that simple. Childlike simplicity. And then he goes, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Why? Because you're in the hand of God. He's hanging on to you. And then he goes on to say that the Father is, is also, you're also in the Father's hand, and you should never perish. So again, this is just a good, uh, as Paul, remember, Paul's dealing with a lot of different thinking here in these Corinthians, and he's got to reassure them that God saved you, and he's going to keep you. And by the way, I want you now to reflect that in your life, not as a sinful way, but to go reflect it in a godly, holy way. He's trying to get them straightened out, and he's going to spend 
the entire letter doing that. 1 Corinthians 1. Now, this is where it gets interesting. This is kind of what started the letter, actually. So the household of Chloe, you could say they're little tattletalers here, but they just had enough of all the division going on in the church, and they write Paul a letter and say, we got a problem, Paul. we got all these people walking around thinking they're better than others. we got all this division and faction. you got to do something about this. Now, Paul was already gone. He was in Ephesus when he got word from the household of Chloe that we got a problem in Corinth, so Paul writes the letter. He's not present. He writes it and sends it. And, he said, and so he gives a summary statement before he gets into the details. I think that's so interesting of that style. Because he says, he wants you to be perfectly joined together, complete. He wants us all to speak. Now, you can apply this to us, so I'll kind of do that. Speak the same thing. Have the same mind. Have the same judgment. I read through that. I don't know about you folks. That's a tall order. How am I supposed to speak the same thing? How am I supposed to have the same judgment? That's, well, we'll get into this, but that's impossible. But he's telling us to do it. That's a tall order from God. Here's what I can tell you about this. Paul is trying to say everybody, when they come together, has to have a common purpose, a common goal, and a common mission. And that thing has to be bigger than them. And when it's bigger than them, they have to put all those petty differences and quirks that come with thousands of personalities, put all that away so that you can focus on the common theme, the common purpose, which is Christ and getting the Word of God out. Period. So that's how you end up speaking the same mind and the same judgment. Because you, you're not focused on all the differences because you know that if you do, that's going to interrupt the bigger picture. You get, everybody follow me that. So that's what Paul's trying to get at. This is a tall order. It can't be done, by the way, naturally. The natural man has no ability to do this in a group this size. So this is what happens with churches. This is a church that really got focused inwardly and stopped focusing outwardly. They focused on what's going on within the church, which is important, but they stopped thinking about what was going outside the church. The needs outside the church for the lost. So. Paul's saying the common bond that we share is that we're in this to serve Christ outside these walls. So he says, we got to be outwardly focused. Anytime a church, how many have been in a churches that got focused inwardly? And they stopped evangelizing, they stopped preaching, they stopped, you know, really caring about the lost and the need. And what happens is now they get focused on each other. And this is where the problems begin. Because, man, you talk about differences in this room. That'll, that'll start trouble just like that. So what is our purpose? What's our mission? Well, spreading the gospel. We're supposed to be evangelistic, mission-minded. We're supposed to be serving Christ and one another, by the way. That's the gifts he just prayed for, that we would use them for one another. So I have the gift of teaching. Now, I don't necessarily want that. I didn't, I didn't ask for it. But God said, you're going to do this. Because if I had it my way, I probably would not do this. I'm, trust me, I don't like crowds. I don't like, I'm more introverted by nature. Uh, th that's hard to believe in, then. <laughs> you get me, I'm the silent guy in the, in the corner of the room that doesn't talk a lot, believe it or not, even though my whole life's been about in front of people. It's just interesting how God just takes that and says, I'm, I'm going to do it because now it's Him that does it, not me. So, Serving Christ is a beautiful... I always tell people when they, they come up to me, oh, I'm struggling with sin. I'm, you know, I say, 
Well, are you serving the Lord? Well, not really. I'm just, well, if you got busy taking the gift and serving the Lord, you probably wouldn't be talking about all your sin problems. Even though you'll have sin, but you'll be busy serving Him, that you'll, the sin problems tend to go away. Now, sin doesn't go away, but the sin problems you're dealing with. It's about serving Christ and the fulfillment. And then, of course, it's about us growing in the grace of God through Bible, prayer, fellowship, church attendance, give church, all that stuff. This is, the, this is the bigger mission. It's bigger than us. So I'm not going to allow my petty differences or how someone's character or personality is made up get in the way of that. Does that make sense? Okay. So Paul writes, because they have a problem with this in the Philippian church a little bit. You read that in chapter 4. Um, but he says that your joy, fulfill my joy, that you be like-minded. Here it is. Same love, one accord, one mind. I don't know about you, but that's an impossibility in the natural state of man. We can't do that. I want you to think for a minute. We have about 180 people in here today. And I started thinking about through this, all the different personalities and the quirks and the annoyances and the, you know, oh, this person dresses this way and this person dresses that way and this person wears the hair this way and this person. And then you got the, then you have the extroverteds and you have the introverteds then you have the happy happy people and then you have the not so happy people and you, you, you the list just goes on you have the comedians and the stoics i mean think about that for a minute and if you're the comedian you don't like being around stoics like lighten up live it up man you know that's that's just our personality right so how do we overcome all that those differences how do i get the same one mind it goes back to being on focused on the bigger thing. I'm not going to let that disrupt what we're supposed to be doing for Christ. And that's what Paul's trying to really teach them. It's impossible. That's right. But it's supernatural, and God can do it through us. That means we got to be a mature group of believers for this to get done. You want to find disunity? You'll find a bunch of immature believers. You get enough mature believers, they override the immaturity. That's just how it works in God's plan. So God, pastor even talked about, this thing keeps going on. It keeps, uh, he, he was talking about this as we pray for one another, and we talk about, he was just talking about divisions and stuff that can happen. He says, this is not natural. So when we start fighting inwardly, it's because we're being immature. So what's my part? What's, what's the role that I play in all this? Well, lowliness of mind, let each other steem other better than themselves. Wow, I'm supposed to make you more important than me? How am I supposed to do that? I, 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 this is contrary to everything I've been trained in my life. I'm supposed to be the most important one here. And then you're secondary. But God's, in God's economy and His kingdom, He says, you're more important than, than me. And if you take that view, you're going to get through a lot, and God, I'm going to use you in a great and mighty way. That's how people end up serving, because they, they're going to do it for others, not themselves. I think about Nick. Nick spent the entire day cooking ribs for, all, for, all, for those that had the celebration of the Bible. And I thought to myself, there's a perfect example of someone who's thinking about others and not himself. Because I don't know about you, he called me, and I kept, we kept talking to each other through this process. And, and I was like, brother, you need some help. He's like a one-man army, I'm telling you. I'm like, you need some help? No, no, I'm good, I'm good. I, I kind of like reading between the lines. Maybe he's not so good, you know? He needs a little help. But about 2 o'clock, I said, you know, it's just a nice day. I think I'll relax. Of course, 
he calls me. Just as I lay down, first thing he says, hey, are you taking a nap? <laughs> so I didn't know the hint. Was he hinting at like, hey, I need you over here? Or I'm like, well, you know, yeah, until you called. So I was like, everything good? He goes, no, everything's good. I think he's like, oh, I'm fine. I said, Lord said, no, he needs help. And I got up, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, run down there, and he needed help. And it was wonderful. We had a good time. People got served. And I kept thinking about this. you got to think others are more important, not your own. That doesn't mean you don't think about yourself important things. Just saying, you, in order to, for the household of God to run, you got to think of others more important. And, and there he says, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Isn't that something? Boy, if we applied that truth, think about what we could accomplish. And we do accomplish here at Gospel. Praise the Lord. And some of you have churches back home that do the same. It's the other focus versus the me focus. So, nothing will destroy a body of believers faster than disunity. The old equation, you get a mature group, you're going to have unity. A mature, I'm talking a mature group of, of Bible believers. Believing in the Word of God and the principles. Then there's the immaturity. What Paul's dealing with is not a mature group. They're a carnal, immature group who has a lot of things to change. If you're, for you are yet carnal. Now remember, they've been around for a while. These aren't new babes in Christ that were just birthed a day or two ago or a week ago, a month. This is like three, three years into it. They've had, they should have matured some by now. You know, I get it in the first year, you know, somebody's immature. But he says, there's envying, strife, divisions. Aren't you carnal and walk as men? So, we got uh, no time left. So, we're going to get into this personality cults and clicks quickly next week. And the old, I'm, I belong to Peter. No, I belong to Paul. And what that really means. What, that really, what they really meant by that. And why God can't stand that and what we should do, our view on that perspective. So that's kind of how some of this study will go. Then there will be other themes that will go through much quicker that will take a chapter and will be done by the, in one series. So you know, bear with me through this as we kind of learn and navigate through this study on what God wants for us. But it's a buffet, folks. I don't know what, what God has planned, when he sa- what he says for us, but I do know that we can all glean something from this stuff. And no matter what age level we are, where we are as believers and faith, God, God has something he can give us that help us. So with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, okay? Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for gathering us together once again by the grace of God. And Father, for, we thank you for our salvation, for the blood of Christ that gives us that wonderful relationship that Lord has secured. We thank you and help us to live the sanctified life from what you've already done for us, or we can reflect what you've done in your love. We pray now you'll help us, Lord, to understand the things that we've talked about. Give us remembrance of them, and Lord, prepare our hearts, Lord, as we receive the word, we pray from the Spirit of God that is going to give, be given to us during the worship hour. Bless every aspect of it. For your glory and honor, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. If you would like to know more about the Lord Jesus Christ, you may contact us at the church website, gospelbaptistchurch.com, or you can go to Facebook and type in Gospel Baptist Church, Bonita Springs, Florida. Also, you could call the church office at 239-947-1285. Thank you, and God bless.